Welcome to Sabbath School brought to you by It Is Written. We're delighted to have you with us once again today as we continue our study through the subject of death, dying, and the future hope. We've already covered a little bit, but we've got a long way to go in these 14 weeks that we are going to be together. But today, we are looking at a subject that's very important to understand, and it kind of builds on what we looked at last week. Because last week, we looked at how sin came into the world and how Adam and Eve were deceived by the adversary. But this week we're going to unpack that a little bit more because it seemed like God said, if you ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you would surely die. And the adversary said, you wouldn't surely die. Looked almost like the adversary was right and God was wrong. We unpacked that a little bit. Hopefully you caught that one. If not, you can catch it on the replays. But this week we're looking at a subject that builds right off of that, and that is human nature. Understanding human nature. This is week number three, lesson number three. And here to guide us through this lesson and the remaining lessons in this quarter is the author of the Adult uh, Sabbath School Bible Study Guide, and that is Alberto Tim. He's an associate director of the Ellen G. White Estate. Alberto, welcome back. It's always a joy to be with you. So this subject now, understanding human nature, it sounds like it's not the simplest thing in the world. It sounds like maybe understanding human nature, some of us may not even know what is meant by human nature. And there are some different viewpoints out there. What are some of the major viewpoints on human nature and why is this important for us to understand? Of course, there would be plenty of discussion to this topic. For instance, you have ancient Egypt's and how they had that kind of understanding. And you remember that uh, the whole architecture of Egypt is built on how to survive that, and the pyramids and so on, and uh, you have all this. But closer to us, I would like to mention just three. And one of those is uh, Greek philosophy, and their dualistic understanding of reality and consequently also of the human nature. And I have three books by Plato here, just as an example, as an illustration, because he has shaped much of our uh, traditional Christian thinking. And for them, definitely uh, for the, I mean, for Plato uh, quoting uh, or transcribing even to a certain degree uh, Socrates. Uh, The body, the human body, is the prison, is the material element of the human being and the prison of the soul. So that would be considered like the liberation of the soul, wherever the the soul would go, either to, to hell, to paradise, using our language today, And also they had an intermediate state uh, similar to purgatory. But this is the idea where you have elements of the human body, whether the soul or spirit, that survive that. Do you have another one that we call monism? And that one, uh, from this perspective, from this uh, dealing with uh, human nature and uh, reality, means that Human beings are just a a microcosmic expression of the huge um, universal mind. So, in other words, we would end up being expressions or extensions of God, so to say, or this uh, human mind. 
And this has become more and more popular today through some of the Eastern philosophies that are uh, taking ground of in our society today. Many books are in this, uh, this area, and especially through the New Age movement. And the third one that I understand that's the biblical point of view is the holistic one, not with age at the beginning, but with WH. But I would prefer to refer to it just as the biblical point of view when we are an integrated uh, reality. So there is nothing that really can survive consciously the death of the person. So we are a person and not just the prison or whatever you you want to say of some kind of thing that can survive that. So we have a, a, a dualistic, a, a monistic, if you will, and also a biblical view. How, how does the Bible describe human nature? What is that, in a nutshell, what does that look like? Actually, we have a few key Bible passages Genesis 1 verses 26 and 27 explains how uh, human beings were created. We are not just monkeys, grown-up monkeys, or some kind of primitive uh, uh, form of life that really has been uh, developed into a more sophisticated form of life. What does the Bible say? Yeah, let's, let's take a look at this. And there's, there's actually some interesting verses in verses uh, 26 and 27 that talk a little bit about this. I want to jump to those. Verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then it says, So God created man in his own image, In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So it it looks here like God created us in his image, but but what does that mean to be created in God's image? Does that, I mean, human beings, we all look, well, different. Most of us have two eyes and two ears and two arms and two legs, but, but we look different. How are we created in God's image? Some people believe that, uh, that uh, image of God in the human being is just the will. But this is not the case. The original, the, uh, the passage in the original language actually does not mention only this kind of the will or our whatever you want to add to it, but also the likeness. It has a physical uh, element to it as well. So we resemble God in the sense of being created in his image and likeness. But this is something I like very much, a theologian that says the following. I can say that the picture that I take from a sunset resembles the sunset. But I cannot say that a sunset is similar to my picture, because then I would be really narrowing the majestic view of the sky, of, uh, of nature to a piece of paper. So that does not work. So we are created to God's image and likeness, but he is not our uh, likeness. 
But a crucial passage that we have later on, and if you want to read it, and this is in the second chapter of Genesis, verse 7. Yeah, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 says this, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, I'm reading here from the New King James. The King James says that man became a living soul, and sometimes that causes a little bit of, of confusion there. But this is a, a description of how God formed mankind. Why is this important to understand in the, in the concept of what we're studying overall this quarter? Actually, even the animals were, were uh, also created from the ground. This is what the, the Bible record says. But in, in regard to the human being, there was a special work that God performed shaping the, the ground into the figure of a, of a human being. And then came and God bred the Ruach, his spirit, and it became really a, a human being or a human soul. So it does not mean, if we would take the translation of soul there, it does not mean that we have a soul. We are a soul as such. So you have that kind of concept that is integrated and not something that you can say, well, now, now uh, you have uh, one portion that dies, the other one survives that. No, it's a whole package as such. We can only survive as a whole, consciously. So we, we don't have souls. We are souls. In other words, you're a soul, I'm a soul, uh, everyone watching and listening is a soul. Uh, we, we don't have them. We don't possess them. We are them. Is that right? Yes, definitely so. All right. So, so we are souls and we're created in the image of God. It's, it's interesting to take a look at the way God created us because really he took his time. I mean, he, he spoke a lot of other things into existence, but for, for men, for, for humanity... He, he got down in the, in the dust, in the mud, and he, he got his hands dirty, as it were. It seems to indicate that he cared about this, this specific uh, order of creation. Yes, and it's interesting that if you go back to Genesis chapter uh, uh, 1, verses 26 and 27, you will see that the image of God is not only man, but male and female were created as his image. So we cannot uh, just say that one sex is, uh, is, <laughs> is the God's image and the other one is just a following up. No, the Bible is very clear about this. So powerful that he took his time and, and made them just the way that he wanted them. And, and by extension, he made us just the way that he wants us. Now, of course, we've been dealing with sin for 6,000 plus years, uh, maybe we're not quite what he originally intended, but, but certainly the image is still there. And we're looking at this subject of human nature and where we are in the grand scheme of things. That image is still here in each one of us. It's here in me. It's here in you. And God loves you infinitely. And that's, again, one of the reasons why we're studying that in this particular quarter is so that we can get a better understanding of God's love for us 
and for his plan that he has for each and every one of us. There is indeed a hope, a future hope, uh, in addition to the hope that we have today. And I want to encourage you, if you want to dig into this subject more deeply, if you want to really understand it better or help someone else understand it, make sure you read the study guide yourself. Make sure you keep watching week by week as we unpack it here, but also make sure you stop at the It Is Written shop and get a copy of the companion book to this quarter's study. It's called On Death, Dying, and the Future Hope. The author is Dr. Alberto Tim, and you can find that at itiswritten.shop. Again, that's itiswritten.shop. In this companion book, you're going to find additional information, expounded ideas, to really pull things together that during the course of our our 30-minute program, we don't have time to completely unpack, and the lesson, due to its length, we didn't have time to completely unpack either. But you'll get a great blessing if you stop by itiswritten.shop and pick up the companion book. We're going to be back in just a minute or two as we continue our study of understanding human nature. We'll see you in just a moment. Thank you for remembering that It Is Written exists because of the kindness of people just like you. To support this international life-changing ministry, please call us now at 800-253-3000. You can send your tax-deductible gift to the address on your screen, or you can visit us online at itiswritten.com. Thank you for your prayers and for your financial support. Our number again is 800-253-3000, or you can visit us online at itiswritten.com. More and more people are watching It Is Written TV. They're watching their favorite It Is Written programs, listening to inspiring sermon series, and much more. They're watching them here, here, and even here. See for yourself why people are turning to It Is Written TV to watch their favorite Christian programs live and on demand. Watch It Is Written TV for free anytime on Roku, Apple TV, and at itiswritten.tv. Welcome back. We're continuing our study here on the human nature. What is human nature and how does it weave into what we're looking at? Uh, Alberto, I'm going to read a passage here to you, a couple of passages, and it ties in together, they tie in together with what we were just looking at a moment ago. I'm going to read Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 4 and 20. Here's what they say. Ezekiel 18, verse 4 says, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father, as well as the soul of the Son, is mine. The soul who sins shall die. Then verse 20 says something very similar. It says, The soul who sins shall die. The Son shall not bear the guilt of the Father, nor the Father bear the guilt of the Son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So here in both of these verses, it says, the soul who sins shall die. So again, what, what is this soul and what's its significance to what we're looking at today? Actually, these passages are very powerful because it really kills the notion that a soul is immortal by itself, by nature. Some people say that we are not souls, we have a soul. And when our body dies, our soul survives either in heaven or in purgatory or in hell, actually. 
But here says that once somebody dies, the soul or the human being dies. So there is no surviving soul that we could say that would appear here or there. This is a crucial passage for, for one reason, because you have this kind of personations or whatever you want to call where sometimes uh, somebody diseased appears to a living one. From the biblical perspective, I understand that this can be either an illusion itself or a satanic, uh, some kind of personation, so that, uh, but not is something that would be grounded in the Bible. There is no communication between those who are still on the grave and those who are uh, still alive. And there are a number of verses in the Bible, really throughout the entire Bible, that make that pretty plain. But, uh, but sometimes people will take issue with some of those verses. We're going to take a look at a few of those verses right now. Uh, I want to start in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 7. And again, these verses seem to be pretty plain, pretty straightforward. But that doesn't stop some people from, uh, from taking issue with them and and calling them invalid, if you will. But let's look at them. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7 says, Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. Let's pause and and pull that one apart just a little bit, uh, Alberto. Some people might look at that and say, well, the Spirit that returns to God who gave it, that must be some sort of conscious entity, a soul, or or something like that. Um, But that's not what that's saying, is it? Well, actually, this is the reversal of uh, Genesis 2-7, because Genesis uh, 2-7 speaks that there was the, the human body and it was not alive till God really the Spirit of God, I mean God sent the Spirit or so. In other words, the principle of life came and that b- brought a person alive. And now it comes, it goes back. When it dies, this uh, life, this principle of life stops flowing. We cannot explain how it comes, how it does. We know that our life is dependent on God. It's not an extension of God because otherwise we would become divine. But He provides us our life, and our life is dependent on His creative, sustaining power. This is, what it says here is that it just stopped. Life is gone. But does not mean that this not being alive means that now your spirit becomes, uh, starts to abide in a, uh, without a body, some, some kind in, in uh, close to God. All right, and there's a few other verses that are also worth our time looking at. One of them, another one is still here in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, these verses are Ecclesiastes 9. We'll look at verses 5, 6, and 10. Verse number 5 says, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love, their hatred, and their envy have now perished. Nevermore will they have a share in anything done under the sun. Then verse 10 says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave, 
where you are going. I, w- I want to get a couple more verses here, and then, Alberto, I'm going to invite you to weigh in on these and, and tie some things together here. Psalm 115. Psalm 115, verse number 17, says this. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor any who go down into silence. And finally, Psalm 146, verse number 4, which says, speaking of a person who dies, his spirit departs, he returns to his earth. In that very day, his plans, or the King James says his thoughts, perish. Now, all of those verses seem pretty straightforward, pretty cut and dry, um, easy enough to understand. Why do some people still have problems understanding this pretty simple concept from the Bible? Well, I think that uh, these passages are not ambiguous. They are very clear. But one of the main arguments raised against these passages is that they are uh, from poetic books. Uh, So, you cannot build doctrines based on the poetic books or poetic language, so to say. Well, of course, we we know that poetry can be sometimes ambiguous. And you, you say something that's not so clear. But at the same time, I would say, if poetry does not count, why then it was recorded in the Bible? So I should really take all the poetic books out of the Bible. And you have even poetic language even in the book of Revelation. So the hymns of Revelation does not count. Then there is no reason for us even to sing to God this kind of... And and remember, and in this case, we would even have to erase Psalm 23, who is so precious to many of us, or 46... Or 91, many people find really hope and encouragement in times of trouble with those psalms. And uh, I don't know, but uh, one author even stated that the book of Psalms is the favorite book of uh, Jesus, because he quotes sometimes, I'm not saying exactly that that is the case, but at least uh, the point is, is the language used in the psalms, or the language, the poetic language that you just mentioned, is it, is it in harmony with the rest of the, the scriptures? This kind of expressions, poetic expressions, they are in agreement with the rest of the scriptures. And I believe so. Because the Bible hope in the Old Testament, in the Christian hope in the New Testament, never puts the hope in the natural immortality of the soul. is always on the resurrection of the body. So in this sense, the resurrection makes only sense if the person is still uh, unconscious. If the person would be already in his or her reward, whether in heaven or in hell, there is no need for uh, the resurrection of a body that is completely decomposed, is not even, does no longer exist if it was completely destroyed by fire or whatever is the case. And you could even ask something else. But why? How can God raise somebody from the non-existence back into existence? I don't know if you ever thought about this. 
we don't care. We have no way to explain everything that, uh, that we would like to, because the Bible provides enter answers to what is important for our salvation. But one thing you might be sure, that the same God that brought life originally into existence, from the non-life into life, and existence has the power to bring life back again in our bodies and to to fulfill his his uh, his promise how it will happen how the resurrection takes place and brings us back to our own identity so eric that you are eric and i am alberto or so and you that are listening to us this is something that only god can explain but we know that this is the case alberto let me ask you one other question here as we're kind of drawing to a close in this week's lesson the bible talks in several places about so and so resting with their fathers dying as it were but it uses this language of, of resting with their fathers what can we learn about human nature, righteous and wicked, from, from these passages in Scripture? Well, some, some people would use these passages to say that now they are in a gathering somewhere. Well, the person dies and has a, a gathering in paradise with a family, with a relatives that already passed away. But this is not the meaning of the passage. Actually, and one of the simple reasons is if you... If you read the records of the Hebrew kings in the books of Chronicles and Kings, you will see that this language is used not only for the good kings, but even to the bad ones. In this case, you would need to to admit if the person would be uh, going to a special place of a family gathering, that uh, even the bad kings were taken to that same place. They together, the bad and the good, had to live together in a place. This does not make sense. It just means that the king or the person rested after his or her lifetime and is there. And this idea of belonging to the, to the land where I was born, to the to my family is something very meaningful in biblical language and in the Middle East. So in this sense, it means just to be close to them, even in an unconscious way. So one day, if Jesus doesn't come back, you and I are going to get to experience the very same rest. Now, our hope is that we will get to live long enough to see Jesus come in the clouds and we won't have to experience death. We can be as we call it, translated, taken alive to meet Jesus in the air. That's our hope and our prayer. But right now, he hasn't come back yet, and so we can look forward to that day. And that's one of the reasons that we're spending some time this quarter studying this subject so that we can look forward with greater anticipation to that great hope and the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ, which isn't too terribly far away. We're going to be back again next week with lesson number four as we continue our journey through death, dying, and the future hope. And our hope is that you're going to be with us again next week. Alberto will be here, I will be here, and we trust that you will as well. God bless you, and we'll see you next time. 